Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 20th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal affirmed the denial of a peace officer's presumed industrial disability retirement claim, notwithstanding the accepted workers' compensation claim. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Henry Kirk versus Retirement Board of the City and County of San Francisco. Kirk was an officer for the San Francisco Police Department from 1975 until his retirement in 2008 due to his heart-related physical impairment. His heart trouble appears to have surfaced in the 1980s when he began to notice rapid heart beating and other symptoms first when exercising in 1983 and next when he passed out while driving a police vehicle in pursuit of a suspect in 1983 or 1984. He was diagnosed with paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia in 1990, high blood pressure in 1994, and hypertensive cardiovascular disease and possible cardiomyopathy in 1997. In 1998, he was evaluated for his first cardiovascular workers' compensation claim. The evaluator determined that since the cardiomyopathy developed during the years he was a police officer, he qualified for benefits under the California Presumption Statute. His treating physician, however, continued to express doubts about the diagnosis of cardiomyopathy. In 2007, Kirk collapsed and lost consciousness while dancing at a private event, suffering a cardiac arrest. That's another example of why you should not breakdance at 40 years of age or older. Then, following nearly six months of recuperation, he returned to police duty in 2008. Kirk was examined by Dr. Blaw in connection with his July 2007 workers' compensation claim. Dr. Blaw did not address the link, if any, between Kirk's heart condition and his police service. In 2008, Kirk suffered another cardiac arrest while driving home from work and effectively retired in June 2008. Just before his retirement, Kirk applied for an industrial disability retirement, identifying a cardiac arrest in July 2007 as his disabling condition. Dr. Thomas Alems, his heart trouble, was unrelated to his service as a police officer. He said that Kirk's dilated cardiomyopathy is likely idiopathic or genetic in nature. The sequence of events reflects the natural history of his underlying cardiomyopathy. After acknowledging that his heart disease had been accepted for workers' compensation as industrial, Dr. Alems nonetheless concluded that with reasonable medical probability, his cardiomyopathy was unrelated to any factors of his employment as a San Francisco police officer. His industrial disability retirement was denied after an arbitrator adopted the conclusion of Dr. Alems. The city of San Francisco adopted the arbitrator's award and Kirk appealed. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion of Henry Kirk versus Retirement Board of the City and County of San Francisco affirmed the denial of his disability retirement claim. The task on appeal was to determine whether the trial court's judgment is supported by substantial evidence. Contrary evidence developed in his workers' compensation claim does not require reversal. 
Dr. Alem's provided factually supported medical opinions demonstrating the non-industrial nature and non-industrial progression of appellant's condition, thereby successfully rebutting the applicable presumption. New federal court decisions may create an opportunity to reduce Medicare set-aside allocations using Baird formula logic. The Baird formula is a method of reducing EDD liens proportionately when a worker's compensation claim is settled for less than its full amount. The formula was approved by the California Supreme Court in a landmark decision. It seeks to assure fairness in proportional reductions of EDD liens by showing a reasonable estimate of the full value of the claim as if the worker had prevailed. The EDD lien is reduced so that the EDD does not receive a greater percentage of full recovery than does the injured worker. So the question becomes, is it similarly possible to reduce the amount allocated, allocated to protect the interests of Medicare in a workers' compensation Medicare set-aside situation so that CMS does not receive a greater percentage recovery than the claimant? While there are no cases on this point, in the world of workers' compensation claims, there are some new cases that may seem to agree with this concept in liability cases. In the federal case of Benoit versus Westrom, Michael Benoit suffered injuries while incarcerated. Sheriff Michael Nuestrom was sued for allegedly causing a delay in medical care leading to disabling neurologic injury. The parties agreed to a settlement of $100,000. That's an example of a good thing that happens when you drop the soap in the bathroom in jail, I suppose. Benoit secured a liability Medicare set-aside cost projections as high as $330,000 based on the settlement amount of only $100,000, an issue of how to fund the LMSA was obvious. CMS was served notice of a motion for declaratory judgment asking the court how to proceed but declined to appear. Since CMS provides no other procedure to determine the adequacy of protecting Medicare's interest for future medical, the court decided it must act to fill the vacuum that is left. To arrive at the appropriate MSA figure, the court took the net settlement proceeds and divided it into the midpoint of the LMS A range that was presented to the court, arriving at a ratio of 18.2%. The ratio was then applied to the net proceeds where the court arrived at the $10,000 figure to fund the set-aside. The court Look to the 11th Circuit decision in Bradley versus Sibelius for guidance. Bradley was an allocation case under the MSP with respect to conditional payments, holding that CMS must respect a judicial allocation based on the merits of the case. Based upon the logic of these new federal decisions, perhaps it is time for the judicial creation of a Baird-type formula for the resolution of conditional payments and set-aside allocations under California workers' compensation law. And we have yet another important federal MSA-related appellate case. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth District ruled that a claim for reimbursement of the cost for treatment for the effects of an industrial injury paid by Medicare cannot circumvent the requirements of state workers' compensation law. In other words, Federal law does not preempt state law procedural 
requirements. Here's what happened in the case of Guadalupe Caldera versus the insurance company of the state of California, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Caldera injured his back at work in 1995. Workers' Compensation Insurance Carrier of the state of Pennsylvania initially paid Caldera benefits pursuant to Texas state law. Still suffering from the injury, Caldera applied for and obtained Medicare benefits in 1998. He then had two back surgeries, one in 2005 and another in 2006. Medicare paid for both, with costs totaling about $42,000. Although Caldera did not seek preauthorization for either surgery from his comp carrier, he filed a claim with them for these expenses. His motivation, MSP, contains a private right of action to incentivize citizens to aid the government in recovering funds erroneously paid by Medicare. Medicare beneficiary may recover from his workers' compensation carrier twice the amount that Medicare paid on his behalf. To succeed, Caldera had to state a plausible claim that his comp carrier can reasonably expect it to pay for his surgeries under Texas workers' compensation law. The comp carrier argued that they had no obligation to pay for surgeries that were not pre-authorized in accordance with Texas workers' compensation law. The United States Court of Appeals for the 5th District agreed with a comp carrier. The Court of Appeals noted that Medicare serves as a backup insurance plan to cover that which is not paid for by a primary insurance plan. Caldera broadly argued that Medicare law preempts the state law that requires him to get pre-authorization for the surgeries. The court went to conclude that the federal law does not extend so far as to eviscerate all state law limitations on payment. Congress intended the federal law to complement, not supplant, state workers' compensation rules. This includes the pre-authorization requirement that Caldera failed to meet before he filed suit. Texas has gone to great lengths to craft a statutory structure that carefully constructs rights, remedies, and procedures to provide adequate coverage for injured workers. That, that structure contains detailed procedures and penalties for failures of the various interested parties to comply with statutory and regulatory requirements. The court said it would not upset this well-oiled machine absent a clear directive from Congress. A WCAB panel decision refused to prohibit an employer from attending applicant depositions. Here's what happened in the case of Irene Yera versus J.C. Penney's. Yera claims to have incurred industrial injury to her neck, upper extremities, chest, nervous system, and other parts of her body while employed by J.C. Penney. The employer scheduled Yera's deposition. Yera appeared, but refused to go forward in the presence of the store manager, who was obviously designated as the employer's representative. The employer petitioned to compel the deposition to proceed in the store manager's presence, but the WCJ denied the petition. The employer then petitioned for removal to obtain an order to compel from the WCAB. The WCJ explained that he denied defendant's motion because a store manager would intimidate the applicant. However, applicant's counsel did not seek a protective order prior to the deposition and no specifics were provided at the conference regarding applicant's perception of being intimidated by the manager. 
The WCAV panel granted the petition for removal and rescinded the decision denying defendant's petition to compel. The panel noted that there was no evidence from applicant identifying any right to privacy that would or could be affected if the store manager is present during the deposition. The only reason given by applicant's representative to the WCJ for not proceeding at the deposition was that applicant would feel intimidated by the store manager's presence. Such a summary assertion of subjective feelings is not sufficient reason to exclude the store manager from the deposition, particularly in light of the fact that applicant is represented by counsel and has remedies available to address any improper behavior that may occur at the time of the deposition. And now, our fraud report. The owner of the Brookdale Inn and Spa pleaded no contest to felony insurance fraud and two misdemeanors related to unpermitted construction and a lack of workers' compensation insurance. 51-year-old Sanjeev Kakar faces less than a year of jail time, a $10,000 fine and restitution when he is sentenced in October. The court said that the sentence might be served through work release or another alternative. Prosecutor Kelly Walker said outside court that the pleas were appropriate given the circumstances. Kakar and his wife, 49-year-old Neelam Kakar, bought the Brookdale Lodge in the summer of 2007 and renamed it. Built in the 1890s, it had hosted Marilyn Monroe and President Herbert Hoover in its heyday. It had 46 hotel rooms, 45 apartments, 30 storage units, and a large restaurant and bar. In 2008, a worker spoke with Sanjeev Kakar about filing a workers' compensation claim, but Kakar dissuaded him from filing it. He pleaded no contest to felony insurance fraud relating to dissuading the employee. Sanjeev Kakar also pleaded no contest to felony insurance premium fraud because he paid some employees in cash to reduce the payroll amount he reported to insurers. Sanjeev Kakar also failed to maintain workers' compensation insurance, a misdemeanor to which he also pleaded no contest. Neelam Kakar also had faced charges because she signed her name on some payroll documents, but her charges were dismissed in the plea agreement. As part of its ongoing efforts to implement Senate Bill 863, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted proposed changes to the existing medical provider network regulations. Members of the public may review and comment on the proposals. The reform provisions of SB 863 substantially modified the MPN requirements. The modifications include expanding the types of entities who may qualify to have an MPN, establishing an MPN approval period of four years, allowing any person to submit a complaint against an MPN, providing a petition process to either revoke or suspend an MPN, and authorizing DWC to conduct reviews, MPNs, and assess administrative penalties for violations of statutory and regulatory requirements. The regulations also detail the changes to MPN operating requirements, which include physician acknowledgments, internet website posting of providers, medical access, existence, quality of care, geocoding, and MPN disclosure requirements to medical providers. In addition, 
The regulations set the requirements for MPN approval for a period of four years and the procedural timelines for MPN reapproval. Finally, the regulations detail more enforcement actions, establishing additional grounds for the probation, suspension, or revocation of an MPN and the procedure by which MPNs are reviewed by the division and assessed administrative penalties. The proposed changes to the MPN regulations start with Section 9767.1 of Title VIII of the California Code of Regulations. The forum can be found online on the DWC website. And in medical news, the new fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-5, will be published this month. Evaluations under California Workers' Compensation Law must be performed in accordance with the latest edition of this manual. And pushback from the mental health community over this new edition has already begun. The British Psychological Society's Division of Clinical Psycho Psychology issued a statement declaring that, given the lack of evidence, it is time for a paradigm shift in how the issues of mental health are understood. The statement effectively casts doubt on psychiatry's predominantly biomedical model of mental distress, the idea that people are suffering from illnesses that are treatable by doctors using drugs. The society said its decision to speak out reflects fundamental concerns about the development, personal impact, and core assumptions of the diagnosis systems used by psychiatry. The provocative statement by the Society has been timed to come out shortly before the release of DSM-5, the fifth edition of the American Psychiatry Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The manual has been attacked for expanding the range of mental health issues that are classified as disorders. The DSM is used in a number of countries to varying degrees. Britain uses an alternative manual the International Classification of Disease, published by the World Health Organization. But the DSM is still hugely influential and controversial. And in financial news, NCCI says that the work comp industry is recovering from the big recession. Premiums grew for the second consecutive year the combined ratio declined and claim frequency continued to improve at a pace slightly greater than its long-term historic rate of decline. In 2012, the workers' comp calendar combined ratio dropped six points from 2011, coming in at 109. The drop in combined ratio marks the first decrease since 2006. Net written premiums, including state funds, also improved, increasing to nearly $40 billion in 2012. Yay. The premium increases follow a cumulative 27% decline in premium from 2006 to 2010. Despite the improving conditions, the workers' compensation line continues to deal with a variety of significant challenges. These include poor underwriting results, low investment yields, and continued uncertainty regarding the impact of the implementation of the federal health care reform bill. Even so, the fact that the industry is seeing a return to a long-term pattern of declines 
in frequency and premiums are on the rise suggests that the underwriting performance of the industry, while still not good, is not as bad as it has been over the last two to three years. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.